You thought that you could have it all And life could be a bar But you fell and scabbed your knee Now you can be Hello and welcome to the Recovering CEO podcast and video podcast. My name is Derek. I'm the Recovering CEO, live here from Ann Arbor, Michigan, where it does snow. And I'm talking to a wonderful person, uh, Robert Weiss. He's a PhD, Chief Clinical Officer at Seeking Integrity. He is has his own podcast on sex and love addiction. Uh, Dr. Rob is a specialist for the family, and he helps with partners of people who have addiction. And uh, he's an amazing guy. So how are you today, Dr. Rob? Well, I'm not in the snow. Um, and I think I'm pretty good. You know what? Every day is a new day. So I will take it one day at a time. Today is a good day. And I get to talk to you, which is even better. Yeah, I'm really pleased to meet you. I've, you know, I've listened to your podcast, and I know you always bring on some experts. And it's really nice to have an expert here. You know, the Recovering CEO, we're here to help people who may be suffering from addiction, uh, you know, as you know, I've been sober 25 years from drugs and alcohol addiction, but even in all that time, I realized that other addictions, you could call them character defects, were kicking my butt. You know, I deal with uh, food addiction, gambling addiction. I've struggled with, you know, some boundaries around sex addiction, and it really made me realize that all addictions can, can kill. And uh, so I wanted to bring you on as an expert. You know, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you help people? Yeah, I, I would say my expertise is in, in the broadest sense in intimacy disorders, that I work with men and women who have great difficulty building meaningful relationships without running away from them at the same time. And the way that the people I work with run away from their issues is with sex or porn or infidelity, cheating. And I'm not just talking about your average affair. I mean, the people I work with have compulsive patterns of sexual acting out or romantic behavior over and over and over again. And they can't stop. And there are plenty of people who are losing careers because they had an affair in the workplace or they're flirting with a coworker, you know, so it does fit into your arena, but people show up with all, uh, from, from all places with these issues. Okay. So intimacy disorder. So that, you know, so that's interesting to me because a lot of times people have an affair, um, you know, maybe a guy feels like he's unhappy in his marriage. So then he cheats on his wife so that she divorces him, you know? Yeah. But, but, but then there's more to it. So intimacy disorder, like what does that mean? Um, well, I think that cheating, and I've written some books about this. So by the way, I'll mention, I wrote a book called Out of the Doghouse, a relationship saving guide for men caught cheating. I have to remember the title. And the reason I did that just to say it is that I've never met a man yet who actually understands what a woman goes through when she's betrayed. And so therefore we don't know how to fix the problem. And so I wrote a book about telling men, look, you want to be with this woman? Here's what you have to do. But, um, so the reason I said that is because I can differentiate cheating from compulsive or sexual addiction. To me, cheating is immaturity. You know, I don't think of my spouse. I can go off in the world and, and they go out of my mind. Um, I'm not keeping my relationship as a focus. And to me, that is immature. It's thinking of myself first and not thinking of the couple. But compulsive sexual behavior is something that happens over and over and over again. It usually precedes a relationship. It's something that a guy or a girl will walk into a relationship and say, um, actually, I've probably done this since I was 14. And, uh, and these patterns of behavior, 
Yes, they're sexual in nature, but what they really are is a substitute for connection. The people I work with, the sex and porn addicts, they're broken into pieces. And there's one piece that is love and family and home and connection. And then there's another piece that sex, intensity, disappearing, um, keeping secrets, all of that stuff. And they don't match up. So my sexual life inside of an intimate relationship is often minimized or doesn't happen or is very occasional, but I'm having sex all the time over here. But I'm not really that intimate or meaningful in my relationships over there or porn certainly isn't, but all my love and family is over here, um, but I'm not fully present because I'm acting out sexually. So it's really about living a double life like every addict does, but it's also the underlying issue is the fear of deeply committing to one person and being vulnerable to them without having control, without, um, well, control is a big piece, without worrying about they're gonna hurt me. So I keep my distance with family and I get intense with people I don't know, more or less, and it kind of works like that. Hmm. Wow, I mean, that's, yeah, that's fascinating, you know, because, so for example, you know, I've been married 20, coming up on 23 years, I love my wife, you know, but as you know, um, and some of the things you mentioned too, like started when you were 14 years old, you know, so I think about as a kid, you know, learning about masturbation, right. And, Mm -hmm. and trying it. And, and even when I first got sober from drugs and alcohol, I always say at meetings that, well, masturbation and ice cream got me through, you know, that first few months because I was just so sick, you know, or sleeping. I slept all the time because what else could I do? You know, but then as you go forward in life, and um, obviously relationships change, you know, Uh, once we have two daughters, once we have two kids, then there's less sex, you know, and it just changes and evolves. And then, you know, and I do understand what you're saying about, um, I don't know, just the intimacy. And even my wife says, you know, well, we're not always intimate. Like, and, And for guys, I feel like kind of a dumb jock sometimes. Like, what do you mean we're not intimate? Like, you know, and it's not sex, it's connection, but guys right. don't understand that. I don't understand that. Can you explain? Like, what, I can. what do I mean? Yeah. I can actually define intimacy. Can I tell you a little story? Please. This is a silly little story, but I went to see a doctor about, uh, I had a problem with one of my fingers. It's true. It like wasn't working right. Um, cause I'm getting older and this particular doctor knew what I did for a living. I work with human sexuality. I work with intimacy. And of course I work with the trail and all that. And he said to me, you know, I'm, 60 years old and do you mind if i ask a question and i knew it was about my area of work was fine and he said my wife's a lot younger and i'm not sure i can keep up with her and i worry that maybe i won't be able to satisfy her and what are your thoughts and i immediately thought i want this guy as a friend because what he was doing was being intimate with me because by disclosing something personal and being open he drew me toward him in the way he did i thought oh wow i want to help. I want to support because he was opening himself up to me and making me vulnerable, which means I stepped forward. Therefore, we were more intimate with each other. I don't want to have sex with him. He don't want to have sex with me, but he opened himself up in a way that I could have hurt him. I could have said, you know, for a 60 year old man, you know, whatever I could have said, but most of us tend to move toward people. And this is one of the problems that I see, especially with sex and love addicts is that, um, the spouses, our spouses, don't usually say that the biggest issue is the sex. It is, they hate being cheated on, they're not happy at it. But when I read what they say and I listen to them, they say, you don't talk to me. You don't engage with me. You're not listening to me. You don't meet my needs. You don't, and what they're really saying is you don't open up to me and I can't get in. 
And that is the real fear is, yes, the sex is a version of it, but it's more like I have to keep you at a certain distance because I could get hurt based on early experiences. So I have to control our relationship by not letting you in so you can't hurt me. And if you don't let people in emotionally, then you're not being intimate. Um, so intimacy is defined by literally letting someone in. So there is sexual intimacy, um, uh, but even that is vulnerable with someone you love. There's an opening up and they could hurt you. Um, with a stranger, I'm not intimate. I don't care what they think. And if I don't like how that stranger went or they rejected me, I go on another one. So it's the people I'm closest to that I struggle letting into my heart and my soul. And that is what creates intimacy. Intimacy is not sexual. In, in, sex is the end point when you love someone of intimacy. Okay. Does that help? Yes. Yes, it does, Dr. Rob. I appreciate that. Um, you know, it, and also I know in some of your research, uh, and when they talk about sex addiction, they often say there's often some sort of trauma from a young age. Um, I think back, you know, I was adopted, right? So I, I, I was adopted, and back then they sent us to a foster family for six months to kind of hang out, and then you were actually adopted by your parents. So, you know, in that first year, I really lacked a lot of connection, you know, from leaving my birth mom and then leaving the foster family. And I feel like that may have caused some trauma. Is it, could that be an example of trauma? And, and does trauma often cause some sort of intimacy or trust issues uh, when you get older? Well, the first thing I want to say is that people who have addictions often want to blame it on something. So they want to say to their wife, well, I, I didn't mean to cheat on you, but you know, I had a lot of trauma when I was a kid. And I think what's important to say is yes, dysfunctional intimacy in adult life is informed by early trauma. I learned how to relate, how to connect, how to disconnect at very early in life. You know, that's absolutely true. So do the clients I have who have sex and love and relationship and porn addiction problems, do they have early trauma? Almost everyone. Um, but they can't take the trauma and put that as the source of their problems in the sense that I'm an adult. I have to take responsibility for my adult behavior. So I can say, and I think it's absolutely true, that for most of us, trauma began, trauma being hit, being neglected, being abandoned as you experienced. These deep, enduring feelings that ultimately, if I get deeply intimate with someone, they're going to let me down, they're going to hurt me. This is how I learned to be non-intimate. Because I learned early in life that being intimate, meaning letting down my guard, asking for help, being vulnerable means I'm going to be not responded to, or I'm going to get a, why don't you go to your room and think about it? In other words, I'm not going to get what I need. And what we learned from that is, oh, I get it. I have to take care of myself. Not anyone's going to be there for me. And how do addicts take care of themselves? They drink, they use, they act out because the alternative is to make yourself vulnerable. And that's terrifying because when we were kids and we made ourselves vulnerable or we just were vulnerable, we were hurt. And you remember things. You learn your lessons about relationships early on. So, yes, trauma is the initiating experience that leads us to struggle with addictions. Absolutely. All addictions. And that doesn't that can't be an excuse. It can't be, oh, well, I have trauma. So it has to be more. Um, I have to take responsibility for my sobriety. And then when I'm sober and stable, I need to look back and see how I got here. Okay. So, so basically you're saying I can't blame anything on the trauma. Um, first, the key is to get sober and then you work on dealing with the trauma and the cause, the root causes. Like how do I get rid right. of those feelings? Well, trauma is a, 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 
trauma in adult life is a disorder, a disease of disconnection. You know, based on what I talked about, you know, as a healthy person, I have a bad day. I hopefully call a friend, go for a walk, kick the dog, hopefully not. You know, I take care of myself and and it's essential that I reach out to other people, that people are our support, our guide, our foundation. Addicts don't believe that other people will be there for them, support them, nurture them. They learn that early in life. So if I'm on my own, the result of the trauma is I'm going to act out. But when we go into recovery, it's anti disconnection. So I have to go to meetings. So I have to be engaging with other people. I have to get a sponsor. I have to start relying on people. I go to therapy and I'm giving that person my trust. So I believe it's through the practice of recovery that I begin to recover from the trauma. Um, I don't necessarily. So I think people think, well, if I just remember everything, if I just have every symbol memory of anything that ever happened to me that's traumatic, then I'm going to get better. And that's just not true. I could show you a motion picture of your life and you could see every moment and you would still drink. So the purpose is I got to stop you from drinking or stop you from sexual acting out. And when you're stable and you have those relationships that you can turn to when you're hurting sober, then we can go back and look at what happened to you because it, you have the resources to get through it. Nobody, re, re, no, the word is nobody heals trauma. Nobody resolves trauma. There are many therapists who want to say that. I don't believe that's true. If I cut my arm, I'm going to have a scar the rest of my life. My brain has issues because of how I was grown. But can I learn how to manage it, how to negotiate it, how to build a relationship with it so I don't just act it out? That's what I can do in trauma work. And I can turn down the intensity of it. But I don't think you can address trauma until you get sober because you're creating trauma all the way along. You're ruining your life. I don't come to therapy and talk about trauma. If I, my spouse is so furious that I cheated, I'm going to talk about that. And so until you're sober, you can't really get to those underlying things. But one more way of looking at it, I think the addiction is the iceberg. You know, it's the thing at the top of the water. It's the symptom. Addiction is a symptom of underlying issues. But you have to deal with the symptom before you can get to the things that underlie it. Okay. All right. So, you know, as a drug drug addict, alcohol, you know, I understand what drugs did to me, you know, um, you drink, you get high, you get drunk. It's like endorphins. Um, is it similar to the high you would get from a sex addiction or a, you know, relationship with someone outside of marriage? Is, are they similar chemical reactions? So there are two different kinds of addictions. There's substance addictions, which is drinking, using all of that. And then there's something called, we, we call process addictions. So process addictions are things, are behaviors, gambling, gaming, porn, sexual acting out, um, eating for some people, uh, spending, all of that stuff is not necessarily putting something into your body like a chemical, but the rush and the excitement and the intensity of being singularly focused on getting to that casino or looking at that porn, that is part of the process of the addiction. So I'm already lost when I'm starting to think about it. And then I'm getting the money for it. And then I'm going toward it. And then I'm in it. All of that is the addictive process because it's like a step-by-step, -step, ooh, I can't wait to do this. And ooh, I can't wait to do that. And and anyone who knows this, your heart is pounding, your adrenaline is going, you are literally not focused on anything except going and doing what you want to do. And so in that sense, yes, it is mood altering. It becomes an obsession. It's things that you really can't stop doing without help or direction. Um, and you see all these consequences you're having, but you keep doing it. It's compulsive.
So that really defines substance addictions, but also process addictions. You know, and it's pretty easy. If you have a porn addiction with masturbation, it's kind of like alcohol. Just don't look at porn or masturbate for 30 days. See what happens. You know, if it's a breeze and it's no problem, you probably don't have a problem. Um, you know, if you can't stay away from it, something to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not sure if you're an addict, go try some more controlled drinking or controlled masturbation. <laughs> um, no, but speaking of, you were talking about this digital interventions, you know, uh, and really these young kids coming up. And that's one thing I worry about, Dr. Rob, is these young people coming into the workforce. A lot of them are gaming addicts. You know, a lot of them have gambling apps on their phone. They have porn on their phone. They have everything. You know, they've grown up in this Wi-Fi generation. And I know you have a TV show coming up that's going to kind of talk about some of these digital interventions. Like, is that a problem? Uh, do we need to look at that and address that with this new generation? Well, I, I'm writing things down because I, for, I forget things. But um, let, me, let me answer that question first. Um, I remember when I was young and there were new drugs on the market. There was marijuana that was easily accessible. There was acid. There was heroin out there for street consumption as opposed to, you know, people. Uh, everyone from my parents' generation said, oh my God, these kids are doing casual drugs. They're all gonna end up as drug addicts. That's not true. Really, a small percentage of us ran with those addictions. Everyone else said, gee, that was a fun teen or young adult experience, but I'm done. Because they're healthy. And their brains aren't broken and they don't have that kind of trauma. So I don't really worry about a new generation with a new generation of potential addictions because it's only going to be some of us who get hooked. It's only going to be some of us who are broken. And in fact, I've been to a lot of fancy dancy conferences where we talk about all these issues among you know younger folks and adults as well. I can tell you, we don't worry about the healthy people. We don't sit around and say, oh my God, everyone's going to. We worry about the kid who was abused, about the kid who was neglected, about the kid who was abandoned. And how is he or she going to handle these devices that are, let's face it, they're intense, they're, intense, they're uh, something you can do on your own and nobody knows. I mean, it has all the elements that could lead to addiction, but so do a lot of drugs that some of us did in childhood that didn't turn out to be addictions. So it really is about the person not necessarily the stimulation. Everybody's going to find their way to addiction if that's what their stuff is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Interesting. So, so, so you're saying the rates of addiction may not be dramatically different. It's They're not. It's just people okay. are switching. In fact, yeah. I would suggest to you that if, if our century, the 20th century, was one defined by substance addiction, I really think the 21st is going to be defined by digital addiction. Um, and so, and so... Uh, A&E, Arts and Entertainment Television Network, that did the show called Intervention, um, is now doing a show called Digital Intervention. And they've come to professionals like me. I'm one of the hosts for a couple of shows. There are other people on gambling or gaming. My area is porn in this case. And they're asking us to intervene on young people who are struggling with these issues. And to be honest, in my world, it's not that different than an intervention on drugs and alcohol. But when your problem is sex... It, the issues are so much more personal. They're so much more intimate. They're, they're very different. And you probably know that nobody goes into an AA meeting and talks about masturbation. You know, they would probably, people would look at them pretty funny. So you need those places that go, those environments, that information that really specifically belongs with what you're struggling with. Um, and that's what we're doing on digital addiction. We are beginning to look at these other things that people don't talk about. And you know as well as I do that digital addictions are so much easier to hide. Because nobody knows when I'm sitting my phone in front of me that I'm gambling like a crazy person. I can just say I'm reading a book. 
Um, and when you were drunk back in the day, people knew, <laughs> pretty sure. You know, that's so true. Um, that's so, so true. You know, I listen to a lot of, I'm a, I'm a sports fan, and I do think I have a slight sports addiction because, you know, I'm very uh, into Michigan State football and basketball. You know, that's my college. Um, but Doesn't people sound talk like about an addiction. Sounds well, like fun. Yeah, it is fun. It is fun. But people on these podcasts, they're like, oh, yeah, we're betting on this game, we're betting on that game. And, you know, there's so many things that people talk about out there that seem normal. And I guess for me, as someone who has an addictive personality, there's just certain things I, I can't do. You know, I realize I, I can't do that. And so, you know, I really kind of need to learn. I always talk about uh, David Carradine, how he has to walk on the rice paper without leaving a mark, you know, from that old Kung Fu TV show. Um, that's before uh, most people's time, but I'm, I'm in with you. I saw the TV show. <laughs> yeah, but uh, well, I'm not sure what my point is, but the point is I realize there's just some things I can't do. Uh, no, no, actually, I heard what you said, and I think there's a really important distinction about what you said is that you use the word normal, and I don't use that word. I use the word healthy. You know, um, I don't know what's normal for everyone around sex. I don't know what's normal around people when they drink, but I do know what's healthy. I do know what's supporting your life. And I think that's another way to look at addiction. You know, when you and I, I'm not an alcoholic. So if I sit down at a table and I have half a glass of wine, I'm done. I start to get a headache. You know, I don't want to go any further. For me, that's pretty healthy. Um, it relaxes me. It's part of the social interaction. I might cheer to the New Year's, but that's really all I'm interested in. But if you're an alcoholic, you're not drinking for to be social or to engage with other people or to celebrate. You're drinking to escape. Your motivation is completely different. So my motivation to drink is pretty healthy. Your motivation to drink if you're an alcoholic is not healthy. It is destroying your life. And I think that's a great way to think of addiction because we do the same things. You know, some of us gamble, some of us shop, some of, you know, but it's when it becomes unhealthy and it starts to affect your life in that you're not functioning as well. You know, people say, what defines addiction? Well, my job isn't going as well as it should. My relationship isn't going as well as it should. I've been having problems in the world. With, you know, I think functionality is a great way to think about addiction because it's the consequences that bring people in for help. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, because with this podcast, we want to raise awareness so people might, they may not think they have an addiction to go to like a 12-step a meeting, but maybe they realize, you know, they're not hitting their their work goals, you know, or they're struggling at their home relationships. Um, and then they realize, you know, like I never thought drugs was the problem at all. Uh, or I never thought sex was the problem or, you know, um, but then so yeah. So talk a little bit more about some of those signs where you realize, you know what, maybe this is hurting me. Like how do people come to you? Is it usually when they get in trouble, like with their wife or their, the law or something or what well, motivates I think it? If you go to enough 12-step meetings or work in the addiction world, you know this. Nobody comes in without an invitation. And what I mean by that is human beings don't want to change in particular. What changes us and gets us off the dime most often is either love or pain. And I would say 95%, I've probably seen 800 to 1,000 men and many women who struggle with sex and porn addiction. And I can tell you 99% uh, of them came in because my wife said she was going to leave me. My husband's going to leave. I'm going to lose my job. They found out, uh, you know, I, I got an arrest for seeing John's and with, with, a, uh, with an arrest record, I'm going to have to stop teaching, you know, or whatever that is. So people do not come in. Look, if my, and you know this so well, if my addiction is continuing to work, 
for me and it allows me to escape, but I'm still getting away with it. And it's not, I'm not going to stop because it's working for me. But when the world starts crashing down around me and it becomes really clear that this is the problem, I can't, I can no longer say I can handle this. I can say it's kicking my butt, as you say. And to me, a great example of that would be the 23-year-old who's in college, and they're not doing well. And they don't understand why they're not doing well. Well, they're not doing well because they're spending three or four hours a night looking at porn. You know? and, then there's, and then their teacher's like, well, why aren't you getting this work done? And they don't fully understand that that is taking them away to such a degree that they're not able to accomplish what they went there to accomplish. Um, and so there's an example where the porn is destroying their ability to graduate college or be successful. Um, but I'll say most of the people I see in our treatment center are people who came in because their spouse said, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm not mm -hmm. going to put up with this anymore. And if you continue to do this, you're going to lose me and the kids or whatever that is. Yep. Yep. The ultimatum, you know, it, it's interesting, Dr. Rod, because when you just talked about the person in college looking at porn all night, I could see that, you know, for me, cause I, I was dealing with active alcoholism in college. It took me six years to graduate. I carried a 1.5 GPA for two years. I mean, I was just a bad college student because I never went to class. I had shame. Your head was, hurt in the morning. Yeah, I was drunk all the time. But I could see if I had a wireless internet and if I had a computer like the technology now, I could see how porn would have done the same thing. Well, I do want to say something about digital addiction because it is different in this way. Um, accessing porn, for example, back in pre-internet days, meant I had to go get in my car, get on a bicycle and go to some icky place and hope nobody saw me and spend a bunch of money to buy something or rent something. And half the time it was a video, I had to return it. You know, what if I want to look at porn now? I just say, you know, uh, hey, phone, show me some porn. And there it is. Uh, so there's the, um, the accessibility of it. And then there's the anonymity of it, which is nobody knows what I'm looking at, at least I think. Um, nobody knows what I, and then there's the affordability of it because it's free basically. So when you don't have to pay for something, it's immediately available and no one around you knows that you're doing it. That's going to be a lot more potential for addiction than something that people can see or you have to run away from or that you can't afford. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so I have to ask a uh, popular television show on HBO Max. Uh, have you watched Euphoria at all? I've seen a little bit of it. I try to. So let me say this. I really try to avoid shows that remind me of work. <laughs> you know, so someone says, oh, my God, this is great. And they think I want to see it. Right. This is great show on alcoholism. I'm like, uh, can I watch Downton Abbey? You know, it's just can I watch a game? You know, so I have to say, no, I haven't. But please okay. continue. Well, well, I, I find that interesting. And uh, well, the show is addiction. I mean, it's just addiction served up on a silver platter. Um, and it's a really scary show. But I could see why you wouldn't want to watch it, because you deal with that every day at work. So. Yeah, I don't want to see people struggling um, unless they're doing it with music or on a, on a field. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, so, so, so tell me, Dr. Rob, because also sugar addiction, I know this isn't your necessarily specialty, but I, you know, I struggle sure. with that. And, uh, you know, one donut leads to two donuts leads to Sunday. I mean, I, and, and I can't stop. And it's very similar. It's progressive and it's, it's a binge thing. Um, is sugar similar as far as chemical changes you know, with some of the sex addiction stuff and the pornography or the, well, I don't think it's unusual for people with alcohol issues to also have issues with sugar because what is alcohol? You know, it's 70% carbohydrates and sugar. So, you know, you're used to using that as a means of escape. Um, 
sugar provides, I know if I eat enough of it, I am spaced out. I am, uh, you know, I am not really in my body and I feel bad. You know, I, I guess part of what I want to say is if I eat that sugar and I, that gives me something to feel bad about. Like, I don't have to hate myself for who I am. I can hate myself for eating that sugar. And so in a way it's like, I have more control over how I feel if I can find something out there that makes me unhappy with myself. So I think there's a psychological component to it. There's also a lot of hoarding and hiding and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I got to tell you, I, I'm with you because I am trying to stay at a reasonable weight rate. And I figure half my day is eating healthy and the other half is dessert. <laughs> um, I don't think we're alone in that, but it's the constant craving and struggle that is different. And, and then we're back to the question, what is healthy? Mm -hmm. You know, how much is a piece of cake healthy? Not every day. Is a whole cake healthy? Not at all. You know, it's a matter, it's a matter of what reflects health and functionality. And that varies from person to person. You know, when you're a little kid, you eat a lot of sugar, a lot of cookies and all that. If I ate like that today, I'd be a little larger. So it changes with time as well. Yeah. You know, um, you know how some people like you think of like uh, British royalty or whatnot, like they just look perfect and they, they dress perfect. And you're like, how do they do that? Like, what is the secret to these people that, um, and then I think moderation, right? And it's saying no to things and having discipline. And I know that we can't judge other people's outsides, you know, by our insides, as they say. Um, but I do think the key is that peaceful moderation, the not indulging in any one thing too much where it becomes a problem. And as someone who deals with addiction, how in the heck is that possible? Is, does um, it just take practice? I mean, it, how, how um, is it? I'm writing something down so I can okay. remember it. Um, um, actually, I'll just say it. Um, a dear colleague of mine said once that a life lived in recovery without addiction should be just one notch above boring. That life is good sometimes and not so good other times, but it's not that constant roller coaster of highs and lows that addicts run through. Um, so I think, like you said, having a reasonably stable life, stuff happens, people die, you know, it's tough, but I don't run away. And the reason I don't run away is because I have other people in my life. You asked what is really the answer? And the answer is connection. You know, ask Brene Brown, ask Johanna Hari, ask the, all the, these people who really understand that the disease is, is a disease of disconnection and isolation and that healthy people turn to other people for support and addicts turn to themselves and say, how can I fix this on my own? Um, so I'll, if I, may I give an example? Yes, please. So uh, let, I have dogs and um, sadly one of them passed away a year ago. Not a big deal at the moment. It was then. I could have sat at home and said, wow, God, I lost my dog. I feel terrible. I feel awful. I need a drink or that'll make me feel better. Or I could go on Facebook, let's say, and say, here's a picture of my dog and my dog died. And it's so sad. And then people are going to come in. They're going to say, oh, I knew you. I knew you with your dog. And gosh, that's sad. And look at this picture. Maybe they have a picture of me and my dog. Does the sadness go away of the loss of my dog because all these people are saying this stuff? No. 
but I'm grounded. I'm not alone. I'm connected in the pain that I have. And it makes it much more easy to tolerate. Addicts avoid intimacy. We avoid connection. We turn to our own resources, addictive behavior, to feel better. And what we learn in recovery is we have to turn to people and we have to build a community. Someone asked me last night, because I do a weekly Q&A online, you know, how do you know if someone's in recovery? You know, is there a way to say or that they're really doing well? And my answer is, yeah, because they're so connected to other people that they're getting support from. Um, I'm a sex addict. I'm a porn addict. I am not acting out presently. I haven't for a long time. But I know that if I didn't have people to call to reach out to, it's not like the disease goes away. I am sure there are times when you want to crave that sugar. You want to, you know, um, I used to be alone with that struggle on my own. And you know what? I'm going to lose every time. Because the addiction is so powerful, the desire, the intensity, the neurochemicals. But when I talk to somebody, I say, hey, I'm having a really hard day and I just want to be alone. And they say, can we have a cup of coffee? It doesn't take away the hard day, but it builds that connection. And then I don't have to go fix it on my own. I am soothed, not relieved, but soothed by those connections. Addicts don't seek connection. They seek substances and behaviors. Recovering people and people who are healthy seek relationships to make themselves feel better. Love it. Yeah, I love that. Um, as you know, as, as I've always heard is that our addiction or my addiction wants to isolate me and kill me, you know, right. and every, cho every choice I make is either going towards a drink or away from a drink. Um, you know, and it talks about in the 12 steps, the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Um, speaking of spiritual, like how do you, how do you personally deal with um, well, I want to say something before we get into spirituality, yeah, because I think it'll be really important, which is okay. how do you define sobriety with sexuality or with food? And I think that's always an important thing to say, because if I'm dealing with alcohol and drugs, it's not easy or simple, but it's simple to define. No mood altering substances, period. You know, that's the end. So I can live my life and enjoy my life without a new, any more mood altering substances, um, it may not be as exciting or intense as it was, but I'm not going to have all those problems. Um, I can live my life without ever gambling again, for sure. But food and sexuality are healthy, and we don't want to disengage. You certainly can't disengage from eating. And I think it's unhealthy to avoid sexuality. In fact, I would say that completely avoiding sex is like having too much. Too much or too little are both problems. So what sobriety is, is really in sexuality, is really setting a set of behaviors that I know are healthy for me and a set of behaviors that are not. So I know, for example, that paying for sex is not good for me. I know that looking at porn is not good for me. By the way, it may be okay for someone else because these aren't moral judgments. It's just that when I look at porn, I don't graduate school. So I make a list of those behaviors that I understand are bringing me down. Could be something that's illegal, like hiring sex workers. It could be um, having multiple affairs and I've lost many relationships. I don't want to do those things anymore. So I put make a list, uh, sort of the minus list. These are the things that are not okay for me to do. And if I do do them, I already know they're going to cause problems. And then I go over to the other side and the plus list. Well, what can I do? Well, single people might have a whole set of things that are acceptable for them, relationship and sexually. Someone who's married is probably going to have a whole different set. But there are options for what is healthy for me and a clear dividing line between that and what is not. So in a sex addiction or a food addiction, if I cross that line, if I hire that sex worker, if I go to that buffet and I have seven servings, I have crossed that line into 
uh, into not being sober, into a slip or a relapse. It's not that I am not eating or being sexual, but it, but if I'm in recovery, I'm not doing things that I already know and have committed to as being a problem. Um, and I wanted to define that because people say, well, do you just not have sex anymore? It's like, well, no, you have it in a healthy way. And you have to figure out what that is with the help of people like me and with the 12-step programs. No, thank you for defining that. I think defining sobriety is really important and having those clear guidelines because otherwise it is kind of fuzzy, you know, it's. And addicts like fuzzy. <laughs> and I can convince someone pretty much of anything I want to convince them of, you know, oh, this isn't so bad. It's not really going to cause a problem. But if it's in black and white and I've written it down and I am accountable to someone that I have, I can't just change the list of bad things unless I talk to them. I'm much more likely to change my behavior. And I do think that one of the strongest keys to recovery of any addiction is accountability. Alone, I can make my own decisions. I can do whatever the F I want, and I'm not worried about the consequences. When I have to call you, someone I know well who understands my issues, and I have to say, you know, I'm thinking about going and doing this. What do you think? Then I am going to be presented with a different way of looking at where I'm at, and I can make different choices. Um, again, connection, people to lean on, um, people who can advise me. My own advice is go have sex with a lot of people and have, you know, and gamble and have a bunch of drinks and I'll be better. That's my own best self-advice. It doesn't work very well. So you're going to say right. you had spirituality. Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I just, I, I listened, I listened to your podcast, uh, Dr. Rob. I listened to Glennon Doyle's podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. I don't know if you ever listened to her, but uh, mm -hmm. she, she recently interviewed the woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, yes. who, talked, who talked about how she's actually a member of SLAA. And, you know, she talked about her spiritual practice and how her sponsor told her that it's essential to truly define your own higher power, because that's mm -hmm. the only way you're going to listen to it and believe in it, is if you define it as the way you really want it to be. You know, like I was raised Catholic with a, you know, pretty strict um, picture of what God is, right? So in recovery or 12-step recovery, they, they suggest have a higher power of your understanding. And, and, and I'm just curious of your opinion on this because in AA, you know, which is the foundation of all 12 steps, they, they say that the foundation of this program is really to help you find God, which right. is a big statement. Um, you know, I look at that as living in the light or not living alone. You know, finding God is really almost in finding the God within, you know, uh, connecting to my true self or I don't know. I'm just curious how you, how you uh, see that and how you work to do that. If you do. Well, I do think that there are people who have, um, who had very difficult experiences with their religion early in life that in some ways could have been traumatic, you know, as a part of their trauma. So not everyone, but when you say to someone, you need to return to some spirituality and understand what your higher power is. I think a lot of people curl up and want to run the other way because they think it's, it means religion or they think it means a certain kind of practice that they have to do or else they're bad, you know, those kinds of things. And I, I agree with you. I think that we have to find our, the, the point is, is to say, I am not alone. There is something bigger than me that is going on and that, um, and that I'm a part of it. And this is also that part of connection. So being, you know, they say in the 12 step programs, a lot about surrender, a lot about letting go. Well, I don't trust myself surrendering to anybody. You know, I knew what that was like as a kid and I ain't doing it again. But this idea that I can have faith, that I can trust, that I can believe that if I let go of some of my fears, anxieties, that good things will happen. Um, 
those are spiritual values. Now I have to tell you, I don't believe in big G God. I don't think there's anybody up there with an old with a beard and a you know staff directing traffic. I don't think that prayer is going to be heard. You know, for me, that's just not. I don't believe in that outside thing. It's just how. I, but do I believe in a higher power? Absolutely, and I can tell you what it is. When I stand in a twelve-step meeting, or I go to group therapy, or I have lunch with someone I love, and I feel that connection between us—that's where God lives for me. It lives in. If you ever seen Michael, you know Michelangelo's ceiling. I think God is touching somebody. I don't know you guys, the angel Gabriel or something, and these two fingers are. are pointing toward each other. One of them is the finger of God and one of them is the finger of a person. And to me, that space in between, that's where God is, where you and I are. And I know this because I go to 12-step meetings with deeply hurt and troubled people. And somehow with the connections there and the support there and the ability to trust others, they become spiritual people. And it has nothing to do with going to any particular religion. It has to do with a belief that alone i'm not going to do well and in some kind of connection i will again i'm going to come back to every other time that addiction is every time addiction is a disease of isolation and disconnection it's a fear of leaning into and on other people that i learned early in life and the more i learn to trust and lean into people and and belief systems that work for me the the less likely it is that i'm going to get myself into trouble and I absolutely believe that by myself, I'm in serious trouble. But in connection to other people, that's where God lives. That's mine. That's mine. Yours may be completely different. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with returning to the religion of your of your early origins. But it has to be integrated in not just a rule-based way. Do this, do that. It has to come from inside. And that that's a different journey than growing up in a religion, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that. You know, and... Um, you know, when they talk about addiction and for me, I know myself, when I started going against some of my morals and values, or when I started acting in a way that didn't feel good, you could feel it right in here, you know? And I kind of feel like that's in some ways it was, you know, like I knew that I was not meant to live, um, alone in a, in a locked apartment with a shotgun looking out the window. And there's, that was so useless. Like that was so against what maybe I was, had the potential to be. Right? But it's and, safe. On some level, it's safe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but I realized it was wrong. You know, and each time I get stuck in that, you know, when I do something that goes against my morals, I can feel it in here. And I think that's, in many ways, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, um, I don't know, uh, God, you know, or whatnot. Or, but uh, they talk about his own enlightened self-interest must tell him that he has to change. You know, my own enlightened self-interest had to tell me that, Derek, this is wrong. You know, I can't do this. It feels bad. If, you know, if my wife knew about it, it would be bad. If my parents knew about it, I would be ashamed. That's a really good sign. You know, if the police caught me, they would arrest me. You know, all those things are really good, like, signs to the addict to maybe change. Well, I often say to people, it's sort of, um, it's kind of silly, but if someone you love and trust who knows nothing about your addiction were sitting on your shoulder, would you do this? Would you do that? In other words, if you had a different way of being observed um, and someone was around, would you still be doing this? Because addicts tend to, you know, we want to hide, we want to isolate, we don't want people to know what we're doing. And so yes, bringing in the light of other people's eyes, I think is a wonderful way to think about recovery. And, and someone who's spiritual might say that I'm never alone, that I'm always guided, that I'm always connected, you know, and that also is an important way of staying, uh, of feeling like a part of. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think spirituality is very important, but it really has to the belief that there that I do not have the answers and that I need to reach out and get them wherever I can. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about your website, the section relationship healing.com? I know you have some volunteer therapists out there. Can you tell sure. us a little bit about that. Well, first I, I do want to say, if you don't mind that I run and created a treatment center yes, and uh, this is my fifth, I think. So I'm an old man. I'm 61. I've been doing this work since I was 30. So I've created treatment centers for sex addiction in Tennessee and Singapore in Los Angeles, like all over the world, really. Um, I've worked for the military um, because most therapists don't know how to talk about masturbation unless work with it. So um, I've had a lot of opportunities. And one of the words that is most important to me in my work is the word integrity. And it's exactly what you talked about. It's if I'm with my spouse, there's nothing that they don't know about me. If I'm at work and someone said, I don't want anyone to see me in the shower in the morning, but if I said, oh, I took a shower this morning, they wouldn't say you did what? In other words, wherever I go in life, I don't have anything to hide. I have boundaries. I don't want everyone to know every single thing, but if they did, I wouldn't feel like I was a bad person and hiding things. So integrity, which is, by the way, integrity is the taking of separate parts, disintegration, and putting them into one. And if you're compartmentalized or you're acting out and you have two or three different lives, you're not integrated. So I named our treatment program Seeking Integrity because I think that is the goal is to at all times to the my best of my ability be in integrated, have integrity, not be split into pieces. So uh, SeekingIntegrity.com, that's our website. I treat, we treat men who have sex addiction, porn addiction, and we treat men who have combined drug and sex problems, which is a whole other subject because people who drink and use during being sexual and people who are sexual and then have to drink and use where these addictions kind of tie together. Um, it's really fascinating to me to find out what's underneath because if I drink in order to enjoy sex, that's another thing. If I use to tolerate sex, that's another thing. So, you know, anyway, I'm very interested in the combination, but seeking integrity aside, um, there's a website we have called sex and relationship and what's on sexandrelationshiphealing.com is I got uh, about 20 therapists to volunteer their time. And we do 19 groups a week that are absolutely free for anyone who anonymously wants to drop in. We sell nothing. We All we do is give you a space that is moderated to talk about sex, to talk about porn, to talk about being betrayed, to talk about drugs and sex. Not everyone feels comfortable in a 12-step program. Some people want kind of someone to observe and keep it safe, if you will. And as I said, a lot of people may never make it to therapy. So we've created all these spaces and videos and podcasts and all of this stuff that's completely free so that in my mind, people can start this journey. And you and I were talking earlier, you know, so many people, so many more people than you and I know or see never get to a therapist. They can't afford it. They don't have insurance. They got three jobs. So many people will never get to a 12-step meeting for many similar reasons. But they can drop in online and they can learn something and they can connect with people and they can watch a video or they can listen to a podcast. Thank goodness we live in a world where you and I can sit here and offer healing to people. And, you know, I don't think we've gone very far. Uh, I didn't go very far today except from my living room to my dining room, you know. But I can help people. And maybe there's one more thing I want to say. It makes me kind of tearful. Um, When I started doing a podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction, 
you know, I live in the States. I thought, okay, you know, this is great. People in the U.S., podcasts are kind of a thing. What I didn't realize is that podcasts play in Japan. They play in Thailand. They play in China. They play in Europe. They play all in South Africa. They play all over the world. And that's kind of what makes me tearful is I'll get a note from somebody, you know, who's in Indonesia or, or they're in Africa. And they say, you know, I never understood what was wrong with me. I always thought I was a bad person. And I listened to this and I realized, oh, I actually have a problem and I can work on it and I can make it better. And I don't know about you, Derek, but for me, the greatest gift in all of this is to be able to give stuff to people who I will never meet. When I get a note from someone who says, I read your book, I heard your podcast and I learned things and I don't think I'm a bad person and I have a path. That's everything to me because they have something that that I have given them and I'll, I, it's like paying it forward. You know, I was given a gift with my recovery, and now I get it to give it to people that I don't even know, as you do right here. Um, by the way, I want to say something about CEOs, if you don't mind. Yeah. So um, in sex addiction treatment, the number one professional that I see is lawyers, and more than any. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. People who choose a very intellectual uh, career, people in their heads all the time, people are working 60 hours, 70 hours a week, don't allow a lot of time for self-care and self-nurturing. Doctors come in closely after that, CEOs and then clergy all follow into the professional line. And then you get, you know, everybody else. Um, people think about sex or drinking and they think about that person in the street. Or that person who, you know, is on social services and doesn't have any resources and isn't leaving their home. I work with extremely high-functioning people who are doing great and making lots of money, and but they're destroying their personal lives. Or they don't have a personal life. Or they are, you know, so self-hating about their sexual behavior that they, that they, they, they hate themselves all the time. So it, I don't think being functional and looking great in the world um, is rules out that your addiction is deeply troubling. And I know some CEOs, talk about humility. I have several friends who are CEOs of major addiction organizations who were drinking while they were running them, or they were looking at porn every day or going to strip clubs. And for those people, it's so difficult, of course, because they're the ones who were supposed to have the answers. It's really the wounded healers coming to get help. I think I have, the, in a way, the most admiration for, because we're supposed to know better. And... You know, when I get to work with a therapist or someone who runs a treatment center, I, I feel like I'm giving a gift not just to them, but for everyone that they meet or take care of. So anyway, by the way, I could talk forever in case you didn't know that. Um, you're you're really. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. I mean, it, it takes a village. It takes a village to get sober. <laughs> right. It's like, uh, you know, I use the loan, but together we get sober. And, you know, I so appreciate what you're saying. I mean. It's very, very interesting. You know, actually, I, I got a comment on my website just a couple of days ago from someone I don't know who said that someone said they should listen to my podcast, you know, because they're struggling with a relationship with their wife and whatnot. And, and the guy said what I said really connected, you know, and, and you're right. It felt so good. It's like, oh, my God, you mean someone's listening to this? Some person I have no idea who they are, you know, somewhere. <laughs> so it, that's wonderful. It's a gift, right? That's uh, one of the gifts. And I'll add to that, too, you know, um, when I go to meetings, when I go to therapy, they tends to be the domain of white people for the most part. We don't see a lot of Asian people in 12-step meetings and in therapy. We don't see a lot of people of color. We don't see Native American. It's not, we don't see 
all kinds of people who are different than ourselves. And I think there are many reasons for that. There are reasons why people don't believe in therapy. There are reasons why people want to turn to their own community. So I think the stuff that we're giving is different than someone might, might reach somebody who doesn't feel comfortable in those environments. And I'm very motivated to try to help people of all cultures find their way to healing whatever way they can. It's so easy for you and I to look at our world and say, this is the way it is, but it's the way, it's the world we live in. And there are all kinds of other worlds of people who need help and they don't necessarily find their answers in the ways that you and I find our answers. Yes, 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 yes. So again, folks, we are talking to Robert Weiss, uh, PhD, uh, Chief Clinical Officer of Seeking Integrity. And uh, Dr. Rob, what, why don't you give some closing words to the, the person still suffering with addiction out there? Any, any final words of wisdom before we close up today? Well, I guess the first thing that came to mind when you said give special words to was I was thinking about spouses and partners. Because when you are betrayed when you're violated by someone you love who is sexually acting out, the devastation is so profound. And I have to say, especially for women, that's why I've written books about this, um, to love someone, to commit to someone, to build a home with someone. And I'm not saying that gay people don't do this. And, you know, I'm not saying any of that. I'm simply saying that women, when violated by a man or a woman, there's such a deep sense of home that has been broken. And I think it's much easier for us guys to go out in the world and put home aside, um, especially if we're addicts. But there's a deep resonance in the women that I treat that you haven't just cheated on me. You've cheated on our family, on our children, on our spirituality, on our church, on our in-laws. It's such a deep wound. And I want to say that to all the male heterosexual sex addicts out there is that it is not just your responsibility to heal. You're responsible to your children. You're responsible to your spouse. I have lots of guys who will say, oh, I've heard that all before, all those complaints that my spouse is giving me. Don't you see how you're hurting your kids? One of the things I say to men a lot is, do you think all that sexual behavior left you being a good husband? Nah, I haven't been a very good husband. How about a good father? Oh, I've been a great father. I did their homework with them. I took them. But if you hurt their mother, if you hurt the parent of those children, that affects them too. You know, so when you undermine the trust and the safety in your relationship, you're doing a lot more damage than you realize. And I know that's not going to make people recover in a second, but I want them to think about more than themselves. So, yeah, my answer to any addict is think a little bit beyond you and try to see the unhappiness they're bringing to, uh, that you are bringing to other people not as annoying or irritable. I guess I want to say one more thing. Um, when I use the words of a spouse in treatment and I say to a guy, here's the things your spouse says, male or female, whatever. And they say, you know, I've heard all that before. He or she said that to me a million times. Of course, my question is, why aren't you listening? Why aren't you listening? Because the people who love us are giving us the right messages. We would just rather use or act out than listen. So there's some parting words for you. Yeah. Um, I'm not hard to find. If you put in Dr. Rob Weiss and the word sex, you will probably find me for the right reasons um, on the Internet. Yeah, Dr. Rob, uh, so wonderful to have you here. Uh, thank you. Thank you for all My you've pleasure. shared. And hopefully, hopefully people will enjoy this episode. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to The Recovering CEO. And uh, keep coming back, and we'll see you next time. You thought that you could have it all and life could be a bar but you fell and scabbed your knee